You're listening to episode 187 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Well, those of you who have done writing of your own or followed even my progress know that it can take a long time for a book to come out. Some projects can take two years from idea to publication, sometimes five years. Because of that, books are often a reflection of what we've been through, what writers have been thinking about in the days before. And it's been interesting to watch the books that are coming out now, the books that are reflecting on the last couple of years, the unrest we experienced, the pandemic we experienced. And for those who serve as pastors, you know it's been a trying time. Many pastors, even pastors who have been pastoring for several decades, have called the last couple of years some of the hardest in all of their ministry. So it was great to get to sit down with Jonathan Dodson and talk about his new book, The Unwavering Pastor, in which he explores his own time as a pastor over the last few years and gives some helpful advice for how we might do it better in the years to come. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Jonathan Dodson. He's the founding pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas, which he started with his wife and a small group of people, friends. He's also the founder of Gospel-Centered Discipleship, one of my favorite resources that produces content to help make, mature, and multiply disciples for Jesus. He's the author of numerous books, including Here in Spirit, The Unbelievable Gospel, and Gospel-Centered Discipleship. But he's joining me today to talk about his most recent project, a book that's releasing uh, soon, just in August, a couple weeks away. The book's entitled The Unwavering Pastor, Leading the Church with Grace in Divisive Times. The book discusses biblical wisdom to help pastors, ministry leaders cope with the church divisions we're experiencing, and also the stress of leading during trying times. Jonathan, it really is a privilege to have you back for a second time on the podcast, and I'm really excited about this project you've been working on. Hey, thank you, Chase. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be chatting with you, and I'm grateful for the opportunity, and it does seem like a time which pastors need support, encouragement, equipping to uh, kind of navigate our tumultuous times. Yeah, well, you and I are both pastors, so we've been pastoring during mm-hmm. these last few years, and uh, we know the ups and downs and the challenges. Uh, I thought maybe a good place to start would just be from your vantage point, maybe just an open-ended question. How how are pastors doing right now? I know you work with a lot of pastors, resource pastors. From your standpoint, how are pastors doing? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm seeing everything from relatively unscathed from the last couple years to um, despair, depression, and either being fired or resigned. And, and really everything in between. A lot of people I'm talking to, you know, there's some common themes of dealing with criticism, constant criticism from church members, uh, from church staff uh, on political issues, on uh, community issues, theological issues, cultural issues. Um, so there's there, and with that criticism, there there's conflict, you know, with people that pastors love and have served and. You know, uh, pastors are not able to handle this perfectly, so they're they're making their fair share of mistakes. Uh, but but it's a very difficult time for pastors. Yeah, I've had that sense even personally, but pastors I talk to as well of of something has changed, and it can be a little bit hard to put your finger on exactly what it is. It, something to do with attendance, something to do with the way people think about church and interacting with church, something about the division going on. Um, it can just feel as a pastor, it can feel a little unnerving. You're not quite sure what it is that's changed, but there really is this sense, you can feel it, that that COVID in the last couple of years 
have had an impact on the way people think about church and the way they attend church? Yeah. I mean, it's no news to anyone listening that we've been through a tumultuous time the last two years as a nation, uh, as, as, a, as a people, humanity, <laughs> you know, between COVID, um, between national politics, uh, race riots, um, uh, protocols over COVID, um, and the aftermath of kind of shaking off the cobwebs of COVID and trying to figure out what does church look like. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a very perplexing time. Uh, and, uh, but uh, there's also just as, as perplexing and challenging as it is, you know, although some of the challenges may be new, uh, the, the early church encountered, you know, many perplexing, divisive, difficult things uh, culturally, spiritually, theologically. So that these, these are things that are not uh, insurmountable. Um, in fact, the, the, the churches that we lead, the history of our faith was conceived in controversy and in the facing the headwinds of politics, culture, and uh, division. So I, I think we find great, great help in the scriptures. And particularly, I've been soaking my heart and mind in Paul's last letter to Timothy, who was pastoring a, in a pluralistic city in Ephesus, Second uh, Timothy. Do you think, as pastors, do you think there's a sense that we were we were somewhat ill prepared for for what we've gone through? And can you look back now, and is it possible to discern some of the ways that maybe we had blind spots, or maybe we weren't correctly reading the times that we were in that that created some of the vulnerabilities that we've been experiencing in the church and as pastors? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's got so many layers because there's different. There's been different obstacles that require different kind of readiness or preparation. So, you know, there's the political challenges, which are not new, but in, intensified. Um, and so, you know, leading your church through political differences, if, if you haven't done the work to demonstrate the both political relevance and political distinction of the gospel and of the scriptures, uh, then yeah, you, you're going to get caught off guard and you're going to kind of you know, be tempted to align with the right or with the left um, instead of, you know, recognizing that the scriptures honor issues on both sides and that what's most important is not your political position, but the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that really, I mean, if 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 we aren't making what the Lord Jesus has done for us and for the world uh, central uh, then what are what are what are we going to unite on? Well, we're going to unite on things that our tribe or our preferential group finds most valuable, and therefore we will uh, divide and isolate from the of those that think differently politically. So I think there are, there are things that we can do to understand how to keep the gospel central in political tensions, um, and there could be preparation for that. However. I don't know that anybody could have prepared for the onslaught of so many different things. I mean, in the span of five years, we had lightning rod events on race, sex, gender, uh, and presidential election. So <clears throat> the, the clip of those events, the intensity of those events, and the incredibly sensitive nature of all of those issues I mean, I don't think anybody could have prepared to lead through that. We just, we didn't see it coming uh, in some regards, and we certainly didn't see it all lining up. 
uh, with the pandemic as a kind of over overlay uh, all within the span of five years. And so I think, um, I mean, you can prepare through prayer. You can prepare through, you know, uh, seeking first the kingdom of God, of developing friendships and all of that. But the impact has been so intense. And, and I'm, I'm not excluded from that. At the end of last year, um, I uh, was walking towards my church building and felt my heart decouple from the church. I had a kind of a feeling I'd never had before. Within a week, I was talking to my elders and telling them I, the thought of walking into a room full of Christians is harrowing. Um, the, the idea of I, I walk into a room and see a, you know, a sea of people whom I'm spiritually responsible for is unbearable. And, um, you know, that, that uh, was the result of uh, kind of accumulated pain, particularly over the last two years of, you know, criticism, ghosting, um, division. Uh, bitter, discord, um, and then the pandemic and all of that. So that's something that, you know, I don't know that we can quite prepare for. Um, yeah, so, you know, th- there's layers. There's there's layers and there's different preparations for different issues. But, I mean, that's a few thoughts. I remember a moment uh, when I sort of, similar experience, I, I found myself more frustrated. I'm usually a pretty stable person when it comes to anger. That's not something I've dealt with a ton. But I, I found myself at one point getting really frustrated talking about it with my wife. And I remember the phrase I used was, when do I get to have an opinion? You know, as a pastor, I was, <laughs> I was dealing with everyone else's opinions. They were always conflicting and trying to navigate this. And, um, and you know, it was this sense of like, when, when's it my turn to get to do this? So I know, I know this personally. I know it brought things out in me that I hadn't recognized before as well, too. You use the language in the book, which I actually really love this title, the language of an unwavering pastor maybe you could unpack that that phrase and where that came from for you yeah i'm just kind of caught on your own experience there um lodged in my mind um with all the different opinions flying around it it brought to mind an observation by daniel patrick monahan the statesman who said we are entitled to our own opinions but not to our own facts or our own truth to the the truth and um, i think that's the challenge one of the prevailing challenges that people have exalted opinion and uh, and uh, uh, rewriting the facts when in fact you know facts and particularly biblical truth is not moldable <clears throat> it's not replaceable and opinions should be secondary to the primary uh, teaching uh, and convictions of scripture yeah i found so, myself yeah. during that season um we we uh, early on in the pandemic, we, we started off, we spent some time in the Psalms, but I really clearly felt like the Lord led us to just, I want you to take the gospel of John and just for a long stretch, work your way through it. And it was sort of, I think it was my attempt to do that, to say, if everything else is confusing, how can I at least be bring myself back to Christ and the experience of Jesus and what he's doing and saying? Mm-hmm. And I think that was a really, you know, again, not to my credit, I think the Lord sort of led us there as a church, but I think that was a really anchoring experience in the midst of that. Okay, we've got these swelling opinions, all of us, me included, mm-hmm. but on Sundays, at least I'm coming, I'm bringing myself back to what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus saying? You know, what is mm-hmm. what is G- the truth, Jesus, the way, the truth in the midst of this, this confusion so much of us were wrestling with. Yes, and that, that's a, a wise decision because it's not just kind of a doctrine about Jesus, the epistles, but you're encountering the, the person of Jesus himself in the Gospels. And that kind of um, is more confrontational and more inviting than perhaps, you know, some doctrinal reflection on the life and teachings of Jesus. So the Gospels are a great place to spend time when there's a lot of division. 
Well, and looking back, I was looking for, to sort of get back to this title, I was looking for that, this unwavering sense. What is that thing that as a pastor I can return to that provides that, that, uh, that, mm. that foundation, that solid place? Where did, where did you come up with this idea of the unwavering pastor? Well, you know, a couple different things. One, you, you know, you come up with a, ti- a provisional title for a book and then you write the book and then you throw the title away and then you try to come up with a title that actually fits the book you've written. <laughs> so that was, that was my experience. Um, I can't remember even the, the provisional title we had, but um, I thought it was pretty good. So it mustn't have been that good because I can't even remember it. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the, the uh, I, idea of unwavering was something that, uh, so on the one hand, I'm not an unwavering pastor. I waver emotionally. I waver uh, practically. I waver in belief uh, in terms of, you know, believing God's promises instead of believing the promises of sin. Um, so there's plenty of, of wavering in me and wavering in other pastors and even wavering in, in the apostles, uh, Peter himself rebuked by Jesus. Um, so <clears throat> Paul uh, tempted by pride, given a thorn in his side. So, there is a kind of emotional or uh, emotional kind of spiritual wavering that we all experience. So how is it that we could ever be an unwavering pastor in, in all of this chaos? And the thing that I, I, I found compelling was uh, Paul's words to Timothy in Second Timothy, where he says, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. There's a kind of depth of conviction. You know, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able. Uh, So at the same time, Paul says in this letter, um, all of Asia abandoned me. You know, Demas deserted me who was in love of this world. You can feel the angst, you know, uh, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. There's an emotional kind of vacillation you can feel there. Um, but then there's this kind of depth of intimate knowledge. I know whom I believe and conviction. And I think that's where we get the unwavering. That It's not so much that we don't waver emotionally, but that God is unwavering in his commitment to us and his commitment to the gospel that he has given to us to steward in chaotic times. And because of that, there's kind of an underlying strength. There's an underlying hope. Uh, even when I was blitzed and had to take a two-month, you know, a kind of forced sabbatical because I just had no more emotional energy, I still had a kind of bottom line, ground level, hope in the gospel, confidence that Jesus is a redeemer and will one day make all things new, and that he's slowly doing that through the church today. So I guess, you know, that, that's kind of a long answer, but perhaps the shorter answer would be, it's uh, we can be unwavering pastors because of God's unwavering commitment to us. Paul's words to Timothy are such a powerful picture of that. I remember, um, I remember realizing at one point that unlike all of Paul's letters um, that are written to churches, you know, to the people he knows at Corinth, or in the case of the Romans, a church he's anxious to attend, knows a few of the people but hasn't been there in person. 
when you read mm-hmm. these pastoral epistles, so First and Second Timothy and Titus, you get Paul writing to somebody he has a deeply personal relationship, and you get that personal one-on-one conversation in the context of I know for Timothy at Ephesus, a really challenging place, all sorts of divisions across gender, but also um, you know the idolatry that was taking place, the false teaching. Uh, and it really, you get these moving sections of those letters that are so personal and are so easy to read as a pastor myself. What was your experience mm-hmm. of coming to those letters, Paul's words to Timothy, and how this work began to center around specifically Second Timothy? Yeah, you know, we often, when we think of Paul, we think of him as kind of the great missionary apostle, planted many churches, contextualized the gospel, or we think of, you know, the great kind of theologian, statesman, the author of Romans. But we don't think of kind of a brokenhearted, humble, uh, you know, hurting, uh, dependent pastor. <laughs> but, you know, uh, he certainly is. If you, if, if you reread with that lens, you'll uncover, uh, you know, the, even the opening uh, lines of his warmth and affection for Timothy. Long, I long to see you. It's uh, the Greek word. It means to kind of have an affectionate dependence upon. Um, it's not just, you know, I hope, hope you make it, or I hope we can meet up sometime. You know, I know we're good buds. There's a kind of deep, you know, um, relational longing in Paul. Um, he talks about Onesiphorus and longing to see him. And, and as he recalls his friendship with Onesiphorus, he says that he quote, often refreshed me. So, so Paul is, you know, as uh, accomplished and as erudite as he might be, he is just a ordinary pastor in need of healthy relationships, uh, you know, friendships that bring refreshment and joy, uh, faces that he looks forward to seeing. And, you know, we've been in a season where we probably have, there are faces that we don't look forward to seeing when we're preaching and we look out on the crowds and we might wince when we see this face or that face because of the, the mean-spirited email or the the highly critical exchange or the, you know, the, um, uh, that the canceling that's happened on social media. So I think one of the things that I find here is just permission to be deeply connected to people who are refreshing and encouraging in my life. And, uh, one of the things that I've noticed during this past two years is that so many of my meetings were with people who were critical or uh, discouraged or um, angry. And so a lot of my meetings piled up with those kinds of people and, and those people need care and they need shepherding. Uh, but it's a, it, it kind of gave me a warped view of my church because there are a lot of people I wasn't meeting with that, that are very supportive and not critical and excited about the gospel and appreciate the way that we've led. So um I find in Paul an encouragement to avail myself of meetings with with healthy and encouraging church members. So, yeah, I, I you know I've written a book on this, but I think, man, I just need to keep reading this these letters and really with that lens of what does it look like to be a healthy pastor in divisive times. There are certainly moments in Second Timothy that are, man, they're they're really just sad to read. You know, Paul mm-hmm. seems to know that his death is imminent, and knows that it's going to probably put Timothy in a difficult spot, and there is you cannot read that letter if you take your time and do it slowly without sensing the depth of the relationship between Paul and Timothy, that love and support for one another. 
Um, Mm -hmm. That is something you write about in the book, as you've sort of alluded to, the need for pastors to have friendships, for deep, meaningful friendships that provide some of that unwavering support. I know a lot of pastors struggle with that. They struggle to find friendships, perhaps in their city or in their congregation or within a denomination. Um, And oftentimes, my experience has been sometimes these pastoral friendships can just almost be surface level, church level. It's hard to sort of press those relationships down into that that soul area where we, we really need the support. How does a pastor mm-hmm. go about building those kinds of life-giving, unwavering relationships in their life? Yeah. You know, it's I think it's important for pastors to be engaged with their church and to to have people that they would call friends in the church, you know, not to seal themselves off relationally. Um, and, and, and it can be tempting to do that when things are really hard, you know, I'll preach, I'll counsel, um, I'll show up at the, at the group, but I'm going to kind of, you know, put a a wall up over my heart and not really form relationships. And that's dangerous. Uh, that's dangerous for us because we then become mechanical in our ministry and less engaged. And it's dangerous for the congregation because, um, they're, they're not experiencing, love they're experiencing kind of a doctrinal doctrinally formed or kind of a loose social community but not the depth of engagement that we see in in the bible so uh the challenge with having friends in the church is that they often leave so while you might be able to get beyond that surface level relationship that you were talking about and develop genuine uh, fellowship with people in the church. You know, we almost live in a nomadic society. People are leaving quite frequently, sometimes for a new job or uh, another degree or to be back closer to family. It's, there's so many good reasons that people often leave. And so it's important to have friends also outside of the church, uh, uh, friends that you can rely on that can refresh and encourage you. And you know, I think so. So one thing is make time for it. Give yourself permission to do it. It's so important. Uh, second, you know, look outside the church for other pastors or other spiritual peers that you feel like you can really let your guard down with, um, that you can trust. You might uh, third think of people like mentors, uh, people who have been down the road, people who have suffered the blows of ministry and you can kind of confide, you know, and let your let your guard down and tell them about your your pains and your struggles, um, <clears throat> you know. So I, I think that it's really important to have these friends. Um, you know, your spouse certainly should be one of those. Um, but it, it, it's it's also just great to have a kind of friend who you can go to the movies with and not be a pastor, you know, or go have a round of golf and not be expected to you know, counsel them through a, a difficult time. And so finding those kinds of people that, that it's not superficial, but you can kind of take that, that hat off or that role is not primarily engaged. You're able to just to be, you know, Jonathan or Chase, you're, you're, you're able to be uh, who you are in Christ without calling upon that role in your life. And, uh, you know, I think one of the challenges is we often switch our identity and our role. Our identity is Christian. Our role is pastor. Uh, there won't be pastors in heaven. So if we're sinking our identity and worth and significance into pastor, uh, we'll be quite shocked by the, by the time we get to heaven of how inadequate it is. But we'll find out here 
you know, that, that it's, it's, it's not enough. We need to, to cultivate friendship with Jesus and depth of intimacy with him that gives us that refreshment that we need when uh, people are not available or people inadequate, because inevitably they've got to go to work. <laughs> they've got to, uh, you know, be with their family. But, you know, in Jesus Christ, we find a friend who is all available, always available and, and never leaves. I think that's really wise counsel and on all of those layers that there's a, a sort of relational layer that needs to be met with peers and friends. There's also a layer in which Christ becomes that steadfast friend for us as well. Um, you write in the book about the role of the spirit in these times of confusion when we find ourselves struggling to find the right answers or the right path forward. Um, how are you experiencing that during these times over the last couple of years? And, and how does what role does the spirit play for us? Well, we're told uh, in the scriptures uh, in First Corinthians that the spirit searches out all things, even the depths of God, and that he freely disclosed to us all, all the things given to us. So the spirit is omniscient. Uh, we have a, a corresponding idea in Revelation with the seven spirits that are before the throne and beasts that are covered with eyes as a kind of symbol of the omniscience of the spirit and of God. So <clears throat> the spirit sees everything and he sees what we do not see. So when I walk into a, a conflict or I walk into a counseling session, I am beforehand and <laughs> quite often, uh, literally in the process, praying and asking the omniscient spirit to uncover things that I cannot see. Um, it, it can be tempting to go into meetings uh, confident in our theological acumen or our uh, understanding of the scriptures or our uh, you know, facility with counseling techniques. Uh, but those things do not see thoroughly and completely. And uh, it's a misplaced confidence. I think we need to put our confidence in the spirit that sees all. And so um, as I'm listening to someone in a conflict, I kind of have, uh, you know, two, two things going on. Uh, one ear is listening for the, the concerns, the information, and trying to express empathy and to understand. The other ear is listening to the spirit and I'll, I'll find myself kind of simultaneously saying, Holy spirit, help me hear what I need to hear. Help me to see what I need to see and help me respond the fruit of the spirit, the way that you want me to respond. And I mean, very often I find that he just brings my attention often to kind of a core issue in the conflict or helps me empathize with someone going in i i was perhaps a bit defensive but when i heard the explanation of why they were upset i i softened uh and i become more empathetic well that's not you know because of the great enlightened morality that i have that's because of the indwelling holy spirit <laughs> who is making us gentle like christ or is giving us the insight uh of christ so i really think that the omniscient spirit is uh, is critical in divisive times. And of course, we're in the end times. The spirit was poured out on all flesh and that began the last days. And that wasn't just kind of a nice, you know, thing to write in Acts that sounded amazing. It is the deposit of the third person of the Trinity indwelling us to give us wisdom 
and to help us remember the truth and to cling to Jesus. So um, a very active, engaged relationship with the Holy Spirit, in my experience, helps tremendously in counseling, conflict, in evangelism, you know, how to respond when people have objections. I'm constantly listening with both ears, you know, one ear for the information and for the empathy, the other, how do I respond? Uh, how do I embody the goodness of the gospel as I try to love this uh, church member or this seeker? I've had that sense over the last couple of years as well, too, that um, so much of, of what we need is the discernment that only the spirit can give. These are just these times are more complicated than any of us can understand <laughs> yeah. or interact with. What do we do without the spirit sort of guiding us and discerning the times that we're in? And and how quick I am a part of it's probably as a writer as well, but as a pastor to to think I figured something out. And then, you know, the person with for the person with the hammer, everything is a nail. Right. I start just yeah, applying yeah. that that thing I've been on to everything. And how desperately I need the spirit to to help me recognize when when that is needed, but when there's something else going on, when I've misread something or misunderstood something. I think that's one of the challenges we have as pastors right now when it comes to navigating so many of these, I think you call them in the book, hot button issues. Um, how are you thinking about when to engage, what topics to engage, how to lead a conversation through or lead a congregation through some of these cultural conversations we're having, the role of the spirit in helping navigate those things as well? Well, yeah, I mean, the three big issues of our time, I think, are race, sex, and gender. Um, it, you know, and those are all politically inflamed and charged. So <clears throat> I, I think if you if you're in a if you're at least in an urban setting, um, but even if you're not, I mean, this is globalized through the Internet. So the information age. So even if you're in a rural setting or suburban setting um, and you're not perhaps feeling the angst, the relational angst and the rub at work or the, you know, it's it's still on people's minds. So. Um, I think there are kind of three there that it, it, if you're wondering where to start, <laughs> uh, what does the Bible say about race, sex, and gender, the construction of race, sex, and gender, and what does society say about it? Um, so I, I've spent a lot of time there uh, because of those things. And I have a chapter in the book called Questioning Christianity, where I try to help pastors think about when people come to you with questions on the big issues. Um, very often we want an apologetic zinger. Um, we want a book recommendation and we, our response is entirely rational, but, but often people are not really asking rational questions. I mean, they, they, they include information, but in my experience with people of same sex attraction or people who feel oppressed in, in, in by racist people or, uh, often what's underneath their questions and they may be barbed and they may be hard, but uh, is not, is Christianity true, but is Christianity good? So if my response is, you know, boom, apologetic singer or read this book, I'm failing to answer the deeper question that they're bringing to me. And that question is, is Christianity good? So I think rational responses and apologetic, Zingers are inadequate because really the deeper questions are motivated by hurt, pain, struggle, uh, a lack of love, a desire uh, for security and worth in their identity. So the way that we respond to people who are questioning Christianity is itself a kind of apologetic. I talk about pastoral apologetics. 
Paul tells Timothy, you know, to, to correct with gentleness. Um, you know, there's a, there's a correction and there's a gentleness and often pastors want to pick one or the other, you know, there's a, I'm just going to be gentle. And so they soft pedal the truth and don't say the hard things or, uh, they, they, cor- they correct with the truth, but it's abrasive. It's rational. It's not gentle, meek like Jesus. So I think the challenge when people are questioning us on the big issues is to bring both of those together to correct with gentleness. And the only way that I can do that is if I am staying close to the gentle shepherd himself, that that I am receiving correction and experiencing the gentle and meek heart of Christ myself. And the more that that's happening in my life, I find the more disposed I am to be gentle in correction and not kind of pick the one that's, you know, that I kind of feel uh, drawn to that day. And that makes tremendous difference as we try to shepherd people through very important issues. Yeah, I was reminded of uh, those words from Second Timothy. I was opening up here as you were talking, where uh, Paul will will encourage Timothy to uh, to not give in to foolish and stupid arguments because they produce quarrels. And he goes on to say that you're not supposed to be quarrelsome, but instead kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, and that opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance. Um, yes. I'm just so struck by it. There's all Ephesus is awash in this false teaching and accusation and Timothy is supposed to confront it, but he's supposed to confront even the opposition with gentleness, with kindness, without a lack of, without a sense of resentment in him. What, what mm-hmm. wise words Paul gives for Timothy? Oh, that's, that's our marching orders right there. You know, for our time, I, I love that passage. And then I kind of despise it at the same time because it feels so often unattainable. It is so hard. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah, but it's but it is it is good, you know. I'll share a story. I, I for I found for uh, I don't know. It was probably a couple years during these really hard times. Uh, in the morning, I'd go to brush my teeth, and a, a carousel of critics would pop up in my mind. And uh, I had a choice. You know, I, I, a meeting was coming with one of them, or an email needed to be responded to. And I found myself initially just kind of marshalling my defenses, rehearsing my counter arguments, trying to remember the scriptures. And I found that that, that didn't endear me, you know, to, to God's people. Um, if anything, it made me uh, more touchy, more defensive. And so I found that that quickly that didn't work. And the Lord just taught me to pray for each one. So as I would see the face or hear the voice brushing my teeth, I would pray for them. I would pray that I would understand them. I pray that, that they would repent where they needed to, to find life in Christ, not life in their pet issue. And for those that were particularly hard-hearted, I would pray that the, the heart-melting love of Christ would, would really consume them. And that, that chase endeared me to them. Um, that changed my disposition. And that's because, not because I'm particularly spiritual, it's because I was encounter I was encountering Christ in in prayer for them, and as a result, Christ was softening me uh, towards my critics. So you know that that's one way that that kind of I've I've worked that out, and uh, it's been quite helpful. I think what you're getting at was one of the questions I had as well too. Is you know it's an achievement if we can achieve 
some kind of unwaveringness in ourselves as pastors, <clears throat> but but we're still experiencing all the wavering in our congregation, the the conflict there. As a pastor, how do we go about not just getting hold of this unwavering sense of the gospel in us, but how do we begin to work that out in a congregation where not just a person is unwavering me, right? But we become a people mm-hmm. that is that is unwavering in the midst of what are really difficult and chaotic times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it does begin with us and modeling it and, and not pla- in a plastic kind of way, but in a warm, genuine way. Um, and others will see that and be encouraged to imitate it. But, but people also need to be taught, um, taught these things. You know, um, I, I did preach through Second Timothy um, and I, I made many applications to the congregation, even though it was written to, uh, you know, church leaders, to pastors. I think that that has helped uh, because you get new categories like the ones that you're talking about, you know, uh, gentle correction and so forth um, for your response to people who oppose you. So, um, yeah, modeling, uh, teaching, you you mentioned earlier, teaching the Gospels. I think, again, it's so easy to be angry or despairing over an ideology over a doctrine, but when we come face to face with Jesus, there's a, a warmth, there's a presence, there's a there's a relatability there that that helps us kind of, okay, I'm accountable to to Jesus, and all the scriptures are fulfilled in Him, of course, and uh, you know, but but the the narratives that tell me who He is, I get to watch how He responds. Um, those are confrontational and inspiring. Uh, to us as we think about how Jesus navigated conflict. I mean, he he himself was a controversialist. John Stott, uh, I think in the 70s, wrote a book called Jesus the Controversialist. And he, and, he, and he went through and he noted how many times Jesus was in, embroiled in controversy. But, but Timothy, when he, or Paul, when he talks to Timothy about controversy, um, he says, don't get embroiled in foolish controversy. So you also see Jesus kind of dodging uh, traps. You see him avoiding uh, people who are really genuinely just disinterested and in, in playing games. Uh, so I think in the person of Christ, we find a lot of examples of how to, how to navigate controversy and to make those points of application and instruction to our congregation. Here's how Jesus you know, handled this. Um, and might this be instructive for us as we talk to our neighbors and to our coworkers or to one another in our small groups? Um, so, yeah, a few a few thoughts there. Well, the book we've been talking about is The Unwavering Pastor, Leading the Church with Grace in Divisive Times. Um, you did this at the beginning when we were talking, but I, I've sort of saved it until the end, too. Uh, there is so much to be concerned about, so much we've experienced that's been difficult but when you look ahead, when you look at come the times we're in now and the times we're moving into, I mean, certainly there's still concerns. Those questions, I think, of, of of race and sexuality and gender are still at the forefront. We have a midterm election coming up, soon to be followed by another presidential election. Um, yeah. You know, we're not we're not things things aren't looking peaceful or quiet on the horizon from my vantage right. point. Uh, are you still hopeful? Do you have do you have hope that what God has been doing in us over these last couple of years is leading us towards something better? Um, is there a sense of optimism for pastors and for the church? Uh, certainly. I mean, there there is all the hope that is possible in the person of Christ who 
you know, has created sin, death, and evil through his own death and resurrection and is presently making all things new. That is tremendously inspiring. But I also think, on the other hand, you know, ministry is war. Christianity is is a call to combat. And uh, we need to recognize that. And uh, I remember when I was in seminary, uh, we had a visiting professor began to talk and he see a stack of papers. He would, in the middle of his talk, hold it up and it said, church planting or ministry is warfare. And he put it down and keep talking. He pulled up another sheet and it said, ministry is warfare. And keep talking, pulled up another sheet. <laughs> you know, and finally, you, you begin to be reminded that our enemy is not the secular people, the people on the right or the people on the left, the Democrats, the Republicans. It's not the people demonstrating. It's not the, the person, this view on, they're not our enemy. We have a real enemy. Uh, he seeks uh, like a lion, uh, like a lion uh, seeks to devour us. Let's remember who the real enemy is um, and not make out our neighbors and certainly our brothers and sisters in Christ to be the enemy. We have enemy enough. <laughs> and of course, the, the optimistic, hopeful news is that he's on notice. Um, he was uh, defeated at the cross. Christ is our victor, and uh, he has put Satan on notice. And um, one day he will no longer steal, kill, or destroy, but be thrown into the lake of fire. And uh, Christ has power now to break his spell to win people out of darkness into the kingdom of light. Um, Jesus Christ is king, not Satan. And uh, that is the one we serve in this war. Um, And so we need to keep fighting the good fight of faith with our eyes on King Jesus, whose arm is not too short that he cannot save, and who is close to the downcast and to the brokenhearted, and who uh, uh, seeks justice for all. So. Um, I think there's tremendous hope as we think about that. Yeah, I'm optimistic as well. I think uh, these last couple of years have been difficult, but they've also they've also solidified for me in so many ways what it is to be a pastor and why that work mm. is so important and why it's good. And though it's hard, why it is full of grace and why it is full of goodness. And, and it has been times I've seen people struggle. And there's also been moments over the last couple of years in my congregation, I've just seen amazing pictures of God's grace and his spirit at work and the discernment that he's giving. And so, uh, yeah, I'm praying. I think the the resources that are coming out that are helping us do that, like your book, certainly are evidence of it as well, too. Um, the Unwavering Pastor is the book we're talking about. Jonathan, uh, maybe uh, as we go, a word on where people can follow you and keep up. And then also for those who might not be familiar, uh, maybe just a word about gospel-centered discipleship as well, too. I, we didn't cover it, but a really helpful resource for people to know about. Uh, sure. Yeah. It's, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, Jonathan underscore Dodson. Um, and then the books on Amazon and all the other places. Um, <clears throat> it's published by the Good Book Company and they have a big discount. So that's a place to look. They're a great publisher to work with. Um, yeah. Uh, GC Gospel Center Discipleship.com is the resource site that exists to help make mature and multiplied disciples of Jesus. And there's articles uh, every week. Uh, we publish books. Um, and um, yeah, our heart is to help people keep the gospel central in following Jesus and to spread it around like crazy. And uh, we also have another arm of it where we're trying to equip writers. So we have writing cohorts where we have subject matter experts come in um, and, and talk to aspiring writers or current writers. 
to help them improve their craft and to communicate things that are good, true, and beautiful. And uh, so people are writing fiction, nonfiction, spirituality, theology. And uh, so that's pretty, that's a pretty neat thing that we do. And I'm really uh, pleased that it's, it's taken off. And Jeremy Reitbull has done a great job leading us in that. Yeah, I've had uh, several, uh, I think, writers of yours and team members on the podcast before and just excellent work you guys are doing over there. So, well, Jonathan, uh, man, what a privilege. Thank you again for the book. It is out August 15th. So pre-order copy, pick up a copy for yourself. Maybe if you're not a pastor, buy one as a gift, put a thank you note with it and just tell your pastor Mm -hmm. you appreciate the way that they've been serving the congregation these last few years. I know that it'd mean a lot. And uh, Jonathan, just appreciate uh, your willingness to to put together the book, but also just to be transparent and to to practice this out in your own congregation as well. Hey, thank you, Chase. It's, you know, happy to help however I can, you know, failures and successes. So thanks for giving me an opportunity to share. and, And I hope this is a real encouragement to everyone who listens. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com. I've got a link there to uh, Gospel-Centered Discipleship, the resource that Jonathan's been working on, as well as the book that we've been discussing, The Unwavering Pastor. While you're there, you might also check out The Five Masculine Instincts if you haven't picked up a copy. And uh, make sure you're subscribed to the show. We've got some great conversations coming up in the weeks ahead. And perhaps you'd consider leaving a review. Wherever you choose to leave reviews, you can do it by clicking one of the stars or typing out a short message. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. 